Before we begin, I would just like to state for the record that today is October 20th, 2021, and my name is Ben Bauman, and I'm here in Indianapolis, Indiana, and I'm speaking via phone with Bill McCarty, who is in Bloomington, Indiana, and we are doing an interview for the Indiana Legislative Oral History Initiative. So just starting off, when and where were you born? Born in Anderson, Indiana, in uh, July 11, 1943. Okay, and uh, who were your parents? Harold, H-A-R-O-L-D, and Mary uh, McCarty. Okay. Uh, Where was your family from before Indiana? Oh, my. (laughs) We've done a little bit on that, and uh, my uh, mother's side uh, came by way of Virginia and migrated it into areas just south of Madison County, Hancock County and uh, maybe Fayette County and that area. Oh, okay. Uh, my father's side of the family, a uh, little more fake, but if I came, uh, both, both sides are, I don't know, four or five generations back when they came to the United States. Right. Uh, uh, mother's side, uh, English to, to a large extent. My father's side, uh, a German to some extent and and very Irish. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yes. And uh, what were your parents' occupations? Uh, my father worked at Delco Remy uh, in Anderson, so part of General Motors. <clears throat> oh, goodness. Starting in the 30s, I believe it was. Um, and uh, my mother was a school teacher in the Anderson Community School System. Ah, okay. So, school teacher and uh, uh, hourly employee at uh, General Motors Delco Remy Anderson. Interesting. And did you have any siblings? Yes, uh, an older sister who, who survives today, and uh, her name is Kay K A Y. Uh, McCarty, and a brother who lives in Florida, and his name is Donald. Okay. And who were the most influential people in your childhood? Your parents, or are there some other people as well? Or Oh, I would say my parents uh, were. They were solid and uh, <coughs> pretty disciplinarian uh but not excessively so, and also emphasized education and learning and those types of things. So my, my parents were a great influence. Sure. How would you describe your childhood overall? Um, happy, uh, uh, peaceful. We lived on the north end of Anderson in a, in a area that actually had been a separate town at one point, North Anderson. And, but by the time uh, we, they located there in like 1940, 41, and uh, it had already become a, a part of greater Anderson at that point. So I'm, I'm from North Anderson and it, it had a distinctive neighborhood feel to it. It was a very, uh, people did identify as being from North Anderson even then. Yeah, okay. 
what understanding, if any, did you have about your family's political beliefs as a child? Um, I was aware of their political dispositions. Uh, historically, actually, my mother's side of the family, well, no, my mother's side had uh, been uh, Republican. Uh, she grew up on a farm in Pendleton, Indiana, uh, just south there of Anderson, and grew up on a farm. Uh, and uh, her parents got through the Depression reasonably well because of the Depression and being farmers. <clears throat> she, in fact, went to Indiana University uh, during some of the depression years and uh so <clears throat> my father's uh side of the family interestingly enough <clears throat> uh was republican uh and his in fact his uh, brother uh, he had a brother and two sisters and they all were inclined to be republicans okay <clears throat> my father somewhere along the line decided to be the rebel <laughs> and uh, was a Democrat and was a Democrat when I was growing up. And by then, both of them were. I, I would say in my, let's say by nine years of age or something, 10 o'clock or 10 years, I'm aware of the fact their party affiliation is primarily Democrat. Okay, yeah. What schools did you attend as a child and teenager? North Anderson Elementary School and through the seventh grade, North Anderson Elementary School. Uh, and seventh grade was considered junior high. Uh, and interestingly, the school was right across the street. <laughs> okay. They, built a, they had built a, a just pre World War II home in North Anderson. And we literally, it was a five minute walk to the school. On uh, on the days I made it to school, which were most like most of the days. Yeah. Uh, um, let's see. Uh, then uh, my eighth and ninth grades were at Southside Junior High in Anderson, and then my sophomore, junior, and senior years were at Anderson High School, which at that time had about. 500 students in each grade. Uh, it was a good-sized high school at the time. And how would you describe your educational experiences at those places? Um, excellent, outstanding. Uh, I'm a product of the public school system and very proud of it and uh, very proud of the uh, teachers and educators that I experienced along the way. And so uh, I it was very uh, pleased, sometimes not at the time, but later, appreciative of various teachers and uh, the quality of education at that time, certainly uh, outstanding. Uh, so I, I have no complaints about it. In fact, the only complaint I have, ironically, is that when the city, when the school system reorganized or restructured and started building new junior highs and so forth, the irony of uh, 
some of the controversies that were to come along later, like school busing. My, I went from a school that was a five-minute walk to class to Southside Junior High, which was, uh, let's say, 50 blocks, 60 blocks south on a bus, a bus that rode past Central Junior High School in the center of town uh, and all the way to the south side of town. Um, and there were perhaps not the best of reasons why the school districts were drawn that way at the time. Okay. Uh, and so, in, uh, you know, by the time I'm in college, I'm thinking, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> What's all this fuss about busing? They yeah. loaded all of us in North Anderson on buses and drove us 50 blocks to the south side of town. Yeah. So that's kind of an aside, but, sure. it, you know, it, in later times, it, it did make an impression on me that right. uh, the busing issue seemed to become a busing issue only uh, <laughs> in the 1970s, say, uh, I'll, I'll stop at that. Yeah, okay. No, that's interesting, yeah. Um, did you have any favorite subjects in school, and were you involved in any extracurricular activities? Uh, yes. Subject-wise, I suppose I liked, I, I sort of evolved into liking history and uh, things like that. Although I, was, I, had a, I had a good education and training in science and math. I, I've got to say science, math, and history were probably the favorite subjects for yeah. me. Yeah, okay. Uh, so then in extracurricular, I played uh, um, basketball, football, and baseball from, my goodness, the age of 12 or no, younger on. Uh, and all the way till high school and uh, uh, played baseball all till, uh, through my senior year in high school. So baseball, football, basketball, not nearly as successful in basketball. And I, in my junior year, I, my, I, uh, my arm was broken uh, in football. And that kind of, I decided I was a little too scrawny for football. Okay. Uh, then also I was in the band. Ah, okay. So I, I was in the uh, band all the way through high school, and uh, played in in the uh, so a music uh, affiliation as well as sports. Yeah, interesting. Let's see. What were your views about the state of Indiana as a child or about being a Hoosier? Did you have any particular thoughts about that growing up? Or I suppose I was pretty oblivious to it. Okay. I was pretty happy with North Anderson, and that was kind of the world I was in. And sure. Then, uh, it, it began to grow in junior high and certainly in high school, where both in junior high and then in high school I had much more integrated experience and positively so so those things began to to register with me um in uh, especially in high school yeah uh, but uh what you know was not immersed in 
political clubs and stuff like that in uh, high school. <clears throat> now, where did you attend college? Wabash College over in Crawfordsville. Okay, and what was your major? Uh, history. Oh, okay. I basically majored in history, minored in political science. So by then, I had begun to be really drawn into history, political science, government, and uh, a minor in Russian language as well. Interesting. Okay. And what did you hope to do with this education after college? I uh, didn't know for sure. Uh, because my mother was a teacher, I was attracted to the concepts of teaching and education uh, uh, at either uh, the public school level or the college level and sort of uh, gravitated in that direction at the time. Yeah. And were you involved in any clubs in college? or? Well, I was in a fraternity. Okay. Um, and... Uh, some other clubs at Wabash, uh, but again, uh, not particularly immersed in uh, Democrats or Republicans at that level. It was a growing awareness of politics in Anderson and Madison County and, and back home uh, by certainly, oh, I would say by the time I was a senior in high school and definitely in college. Right. Uh, much more aware of political things. And so, how did you view? How do you view your college experiences looking back at that on them? Excellent education, uh, a, a wonderful environment, a small college. Are uh, the, the, the enrollment at Wabash at that time was about 800. And so I went from a high school with 15, 1,600 into a college with 800. Oh. So kind of downside. The quality of the education was good. The classrooms were small. Yeah. The attention from professors was very good. So it was a good experience. Uh, much to my uh, surprise, when I arrived at Wabash, uh, I discovered there were no women there, and that was a bit of a setback for me. <laughs> so, after college, uh, what did you do? What was your first job and stuff? Well, <clears throat> after college, uh, undergraduate, I went to graduate school at the Johns Hopkins University in, in, in uh, Washington, D.C. The part I went to was in Washington as opposed to main campus in Baltimore because uh, the, the, what was in, in Washington was the School of Advanced International Studies, mm, okay. which is still there and very much in operation today. And it's again was a wonderful experience—a two-year program for a master's degree. Yeah. And uh, the uh, the uh, exposure that the interesting thing about John—it was—it's an international relations school, right? And it's, it's designed to train and educate people both for the diplomatic service 
for possible foreign for the foreign service in the U.S. Foreign Service or uh, private service. A lot of my uh, colleagues from Johns Hopkins went into international banking and things like that. Uh, we also had uh, uh, students uh, from uh, internationally who came to Johns Hopkins uh, at, at the time. Uh, among them, Wolf Blitzer, who uh, later becomes, uh, you know, one of the voices of CNN. Yeah, sure. There were just there were some really good experiences then. Yeah, that's great. Um, oh, and then so after two years at Johns Hopkins, I then did go to uh, Madison, Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin, and began uh, graduate work there beyond masters. Uh, and with the idea of probably teaching uh, at the college level at that time. Yeah, okay. And so what were your career goals then after, after you went to Johns Hopkins at the University of Wisconsin? Yeah, uh, things... Uh, the period, really, of 1963 to 1968 is one of those life-changing experiences. And every generation has those, some events or some things that kind of give them new direction. Yeah. Uh, so like 9-11 had a, a tremendous impact on that generation and and so forth. I mean, you can, the World War II, uh, the period that I came to uh, total awareness was the civil rights movement of the 60s, and and particularly traumatic was the assassination of John F. Kennedy, then Martin Luther King, uh, then Robert Kennedy. Uh, that 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 really changed my life. Yeah, it really did. Sure. And so after a year at Wisconsin, I left and came home back to Madison County and began teaching at Anderson College, now Anderson University, and uh, also got much more invested in um, what was going on in Anderson and, and what was the, uh, down at the local level, what did civil rights and all of that mean, and uh, also Democrat politics began to be really in, interested in what was happening with the Democrat Party of Madison County. Yeah, okay. Interesting. So I'm teaching college uh, in 68, 69, 70, and in 70, uh, run for Congress. Wow. Run for Congress. I was 26, uh, let's see, yes, 26 going on 27. Wow. Ran for Congress in a Democrat primary. And uh, uh, there were about seven of us in it, and I finished uh, behind a guy named Phil Sharp, Philip Sharp, in the primary, by about 400 votes. Oh, okay. And uh, he later, after on his third attempt in 1974, becomes a U.S. congressman, Phil Sharp, from East Central Indiana, served 20 years in that role. And I, I still think well of him. We were 
good friends. It was a time when you ran for an election, understanding that you could either win or lose. And either way, you, you accepted the results of an election and moved on. Right. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm 26 and I figured out you win some, you lose some. Uh, and, you know, grow up. Uh, there may be another day, but accept it. And, and, uh, and it was, it was e- maybe it was easier to do that because Congressman Sharp was a, really a fine person and a quality person. Sure. And uh, we, we had an extended cooperative uh, relationship for years. Uh, yeah. So, so uh, after that defeat in 1970, I kind of uh, tried to resort and see what to do, and uh, end up. Uh, first, I did. Uh, I worked for Larry Conrad. So he was Secretary of State, and essentially in 1971, I worked for him. Uh, in in Indianapolis, yeah. Sure. Okay. Um, uh, do you want any more of that? Oh, well, you're welcome. To, yeah, I mean, if you have anything else to say, go for it. Yeah, this is. Then in 1972, uh, Robert Rock, Bob Rock, Robert Rock, who had been Lieutenant Governor of Indiana from sixty. Five to the end of 69. Uh, Robert Rock runs for mayor in 1971 in Anderson. And I came back to Anderson to be his park superintendent. Mm, okay. I was superintendent of parks and recreation in Anderson, 71 to 79. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> Let's see. Well, uh, shifting gears a little bit before we go more in depth in your uh, political career. Um, so, thinking about your family and everything, when did you get married? I was married in uh, uh, 1972. Okay. In 1972, uh, at, I relocated to Anderson and uh, got married in 72. Okay. And do you have any children? Uh, I have I have two stepchildren by that marriage. Okay. Uh, the, uh, two stepchildren, a boy and a daughter. Uh, basically, son and daughter, stepson, stepdaughter. Yeah. And then uh, we'll get to the second marriage in a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Let's see. So, um, tell me about how you started to get more seriously involved in, uh, you know, running for the Indiana General Assembly. Okay. Well, and I will say that the experience of the '60s did give me a very strong motivation to run and serve in office. Didn't know exactly where, but and thus there was the congressional primary campaign. In 1970, but uh, though losing the primary, I didn't get discouraged about uh, running and serving. Okay. Um, during the time I was in Anderson, I also went to law school and completed my law degree in 79 from IU 
Indianapolis Law School. Got it. Okay. And so by that time, I, you know, practicing law and still involved in politics. And then in uh, 1982, I uh, ran against an incumbent state senator uh, for the state senate seat from Madison County. And let's see, as you initially became involved in running for the Indiana General Assembly, were there any key issues or legislation that you you really want to sort of fight for? Or uh, At that time, I was uh, primarily interested, I think, in both, uh, public education and higher education in Indiana. Yeah. And a desire to a recognition of how important that was for Indiana and that we should invest and and make more effort than perhaps we were making at the time in Indiana in public education and higher education. So education was a big motivating factor. Right. Uh, civil rights and civil liberties were important uh, to me as well. Yeah, sure. And, uh, and then this is a, this seems like a small aside, and it is, it is, it's ancient history now. The, one of the issues that I ran, in addition to education and, and just uh, progressive civil rights approach, that we had a license branch system in Indiana that was <laughs> feudal, F-E-U-D-A-L, mm-hmm. uh, feudal in which the winning governors, the, the party of the governor who won, got to run the license branches all over the state. Ah, oh, okay. And, I, and I, I doubt that you're that familiar with it, but uh, so the, the license branch operation and the licensing, the BMV of today was run by the party, the political party. Ah, oh, okay won the governor's race. Yeah. And uh, it had it's it had problems. Okay. <laughs> there were yeah, there were funny funny things that were done in the administration of, of various license branches. Some some counties were pretty good and uh, some of them who who got the prize in every county was the county chairman. So the county chairman, or who he designated, uh, would run the license branch. Well, there's a lot of money that flows through a license branch. And uh, so it was a system that had to go. It had to go because it was corrupt, uh, not universally corrupt, but it, it had serious problems, and sure enough, about you could count on a couple times a year uh, the state board of accounts auditing a license branch operation and uh, discovering missing funds somewhere in the state of Indiana or whatever. Wow. Uh, okay. The but the other problem with it was that it, it <laughs> you basically had one political party that was professional. It was paid. They had salaries, and the other one that was voluntary. Yeah. Uh, at the time, that uh, that would switch back and forth. For example, from sixty one to sixty nine, 
Democrats were in the license branch. Then in, from 69 on, until we passed license branch reform, uh, it was run by the Republicans. And the, the benefit of it being run by the political party became more and more apparent. I mean, the disparity, the disadvantages between the two parties uh, became very obvious. Uh, you yeah. had a paid professional party run by a uh, Republican county chairman and a volunteer organization on the other side. It just had, it had to change. Right, right. Wow. And so uh, thinking about when you were campaigning for your General Assembly run, um, how would you describe your campaign strategy? Uh, well, and there was, I, uh, I went through an uncontested primary, so I didn't have to okay. do the, the spring battle, uh, a lesson I learned from 1970. Uh, so the party said, yeah, you run against the incumbent. Yeah. The incumbent was the county chairman of the Republican Party, mm. ran the license branch, okay. and, and served in the Indiana State Senate. Wow. He had been first elected uh, just in 1978, and so he, he was in his first term. Uh, I was on cordial terms with him. I, I mean, it wasn't a personal thing at all. Uh, it was an issues thing, and, and it was about uh, adequate funding for education, and other some other programs at the state level, and the and license branch reform. Yeah. Okay. And the, the uh, you know my approach to political campaign is basically need to pick about three major issues, focus on them, and deliver three messages to people, uh, and convince them that you're the better candidate. Right. And so th that's what we did. And we had a spirited ca uh, campaign, the two of us, the incumbent. Uh, and it may, you may interview him, I don't know, uh, because he did serve. Uh, Jim, James Abraham, Jim Abraham, was the incumbent. Okay. And we had quite a contest. And in fact, the district at the time had just been redistricted in 81. Yeah. And was about a 52-48 Republican advantage, probably. 52-48 Republican, mm -hmm. as best those things could be determined in 1982. Right. As opposed to 2011, when they can be almost totally determined uh, about what the political makeup was. But it was 52-48, something like that. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And uh, what did you think of the election process? Did it seem pretty good and efficient, or? Uh, yes, it was. Uh, Madison County ran good elections uh, then, uh, and um, it, yes, it was efficient. Uh, you had, uh, actually, in some ways, it was better than it is today because you had precinct committeemen who were really active. I mean, they worked their precincts on both sides, Republican and Democrat. And you had uh, competitive elections. Anderson had a history of 
Republican mayors and Democrat mayors. Obviously, we had a Republican senator who was preceded by a Democrat senator, and then I succeeded. So it was competitive. It was competitive, which I think is very healthy for a democracy that we have as many competitive elections as you can. Right. Because it it, uh, forces both candidates toward moderation. Yeah. There is a swing vote that's uh, uh, gonna can be won over, and you don't win them over with extreme uh, views. Sure. So, so uh, I, that's the kind of political system that I grew up in and was elected in. It was competitive. I, I think I won that election by uh, about two thousand votes, which wasn't much. I mean, I won it. 51 to 49 in a 52 to 48 Republican district. Yeah, so yeah. It was competitive, and uh, I won because of a very good party organization uh, at that time, uh, uh, but also because there were independents and people in Anderson that voted both ways, and in that election, they I won some of them over. I won them over. So... Uh, I, I believe in that kind of a system very strongly, yeah. and am alarmed that we are we have moved so far away from that, and 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 there therein lies a lot of the reason for polar, polarization. Yeah, uh, uh, politically, certain legislative bodies are polarized now because there's too many safe districts. Yeah, yeah. I've definitely heard a lot of former legislators across the political spectrum sort of highlight that issue with polarization and the causes of it. So it seems to be a a reoccurring trend. Um, Yeah. Well, good. I'm glad you're getting that message because it's true and it's accurate. Uh, Both Vi and I have witnessed this and witnessed the evolution of it from, in my case, from 82 until... It, by in, by the late '90s, it was becoming more troublesome, and then and it just continued to devolve into this system where, with gerrymandered districts, uh, you you just don't. The competition is in the primaries, and primaries are battles uh, within parties, and they by nature drive the candidates further to the right. Mm-hmm. in the Republican primary and further to the left in the Democrat one. And yeah. You, you end up with people who aren't threatened by a general election. Yeah. That's not, that is not a healthy democratic system. I think it is the worst. I think it is the biggest flaw in the American political system today. Yeah. More, more than money, though money is a serious obstacle uh, and, and a problem maker, but the gerrymandered districts uh, are causing the polarization. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely uh, something that it appears that most people are very concerned about. So it's um, not good, yeah. Um, well, most of them except the current legislators. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose if it benefits you that people don't care as much. Right, except... I will, and and that's one of the comebacks as well. And if your party was in control, you'd do the same thing. Mm-hmm. I never stood 
for that kind of fixed uh, system. Right. I always thought it should be competitive. And you'll hear uh, more from Vi when you interview her, probably. Yeah. Uh, I don't, no, I don't buy that, uh, well, the other side does the same thing. Sure. I, I will acknowledge that that in the past was often the case. That yeah. has been the case. But some of us, starting in uh, the 80s, were going, uh, this, is, this system isn't really working right. This isn't the way it should be. And you basically witnessed, I witnessed the redistricting in 81 and 91. Those are the two where I was in the Senate. Oh, okay. Plus, uh, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I was, 81, I saw it redistricted in a way to make it more Republican so I couldn't win. And I won in spite of it because it was still competitive. I mean... Uh, it wasn't, it didn't change that much. Yeah. In 91, I witnessed firsthand uh, the deliberate drawing of districts because at that point in 91, the Senate was 26 to 24, and the Republican majority uh, was quite troubled about how competitive it had become. Right. And drew maps that, that basically put an end to that. Interesting. So that's the so eighty one. I was on the outside looking in. In ninety one, I was there and watching what went on. Okay, so yeah, in nineteen eighty one, that was right before you had become a part of the General right. Assembly. Yeah, right. Okay, yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, I mean, uh, and what what goes through your head when you know that process is coming while you're serving there? Um, you know. Were you fully expecting there to be lots of gerrymandering, or were you kind of hoping there might be some compromise? Or uh, I expected the majority party to, you know, protect their majority. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't expect them. Uh, well, yeah, I don't know. In the nineties, it, it was like, well, you know, here we go. They're in the majority. Watch what they do. But, but the. What has changed is the level of proficiency in doing that with the computerization and the breakdown of census tracts to blocks and so forth. I mean, the 81 map making was uh, an attempt to to gerrymander uh, to some de- some degree. Yeah. But but by 91, it was you had computers you had runs you could add a precinct here and subtract one and that was just the beginning okay uh, things have gotten worse every uh, uh every uh redistricting since then yeah uh, 2001 was worse than 91 2011 was worse and 2021 is worse mm-hmm. and and all you get is uh, a supermajority that wins in the spring in their primaries and a super minority that also wins in the primaries. Yeah. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. So clearly there's a, a big correlation with uh, gerrymandering and increasing technology, which allows for even more efficient gerrymandering. Absolutely. And so, you know, the, the idea that legislators should draw their own legislative districts is 
uh, <laughs> charitably, uh, the best way to say it, charitably, is antiquated. Right. It, it's of another era. It's of a different time. Yeah. And uh, we're, we're in the 21st century. We ought to acknowledge that uh, the, the mechanics of drawing districts is very scientific at this point. Yeah. And uh, recognize the, the only solution is an independent commission. And 16 to 18 states have that. Yeah. 16 to 18 states have a, another body draw the district so that voters get to choose who they want, not the legislators. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Hmm. I, I'm a little off course, but I'm telling you, that's a part of the history uh, from 1982 to the present. Yeah. Uh, that is a significant trend. Uh, of, of legislative bodies at the state level all over the country, right? And certainly in Indiana, there was a time, and and it, in some respects, it started even earlier with the congressional districts because the state legislature started gerrymandering. The congressional districts in the definitely in the eighties, uh, maybe and even the seventies. And uh, because they were easier to do, they you didn't need that you didn't need that be, uh, breakdown to figure out which counties were Republican and which counties were Democrats, sure. and so forth. But to do Senate districts and House districts, you needed to get down to the precinct levels, and uh, you know by 1991 that was possible, and it's by now it's it's a piece of cake. Uh, that that can break it down, like I said, uh, not not only precinct by precinct, but can even split precincts. Yeah, yeah, households. So wow, it's an evolutionary process. We used to talk about even uh, in the eighties. We talked about well, you know, we're getting a little partisan, but we're not nearly as bad as Congress. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's no, that's now you know, sort of self righteous patting on our pat ourselves on the back for not being yeah. as uh, rabid as those people who've gone to the U.S. House of Representatives. But the truth is, by now, by 2021, it's the same atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. Wow. <clears throat> yeah, that's that's again also kind of what I've been hearing. So it's yeah. Uh, Unfortunate. Um, so, uh, thinking back to your uh, early days when you first got involved in the General Assembly, um, how did you feel uh, when you first learned that you were going to be elected? I was, uh, for, I was just, uh, a little bit shocked. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, um, I always approached elections, having lost the first election. I'd ever run in, and the only one up to that point, I knew you could lose one. I knew you could lose one. I wasn't, I wasn't so sure I could win one. <laughs> yeah, sure. So uh, the 82 election uh, was a challenge and very demanding, and and I was, I was surprised at the outcome. And polling wasn't as sophisticated then, nor, I'm trying to think, I don't even think I... I don't think I could afford a poll back then. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we polled uh, other than the local newspaper poll. You, you, but you didn't have good polling. 
in in eighty two. Okay. Uh, so it was a bit of a surprise. It was uh, quite something, and I'm, so I'm quite enthused and happy, uh, and head off to Indianapolis to start uh, the first term in the Senate. Yeah. Okay. And did your campaign strategies evolve over your political career? Um, or, or were they the same? Can you kind of figured out a strategy? Uh, or uh, my wife is looking at me laughing. There, that's there's where some stories. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, but they they stayed pretty much the same. I would say that there was a shift from, in my case, there was a shift from door to door and um, some things like that and more toward mailing okay. and uh, and a use of, of local television, hmm. uh, use of local movement away from radio ads and uh, things like that to uh, uh Television spots, uh, primarily on cable. In my case, where where you could avoid Indianapolis costs, you did. Yeah. And so uh, back then, it, it, again, lo- elections were local. That's another thing. I it, it, it's uh, that that has changed. Uh, Tip O'Neill said all politics is local. That is not true anymore. That is not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the, between the interest groups and big money, uh, virtually every race is national, and that even occurs in the state senate and the house. Sometimes, I mean, there's a lot of out-of-state money that's interested in getting making sure they've got the right legislative body. Yeah. So that that's another change. The gerrymandering and the movement of uh, of even State house and uh, state house and state senate races beyond the local boundaries is uh, is very pronounced. Yeah. Anyhow, campaign wise, I changed some, but um, uh, I got I the, the the in the course of running for re-election time over time, I've got I would admit that. <clears throat> My desire to go door to door and get chased down the street by a Doberman Pinscher <laughs> diminished my enthusiasm. Sure. Um, and now the one the the running joke in this household is um, I lost the first election that congressional primary to Phil Sharp because he put up billboards <laughs> and I didn't. Okay. I had billboards up. <laughs> so in. 1982, I insisted on putting up billboards, and in 86, and in 90, and even in 94, I ran billboards, which by that time, everybody was saying, this is a total waste of your money. Okay. Why are you doing this? And uh, and I had, I had cut back on, so there's a campaign strategy that changed. But I, I couldn't let go of it. <laughs> the only election I ever lost, I didn't run billboards. <laughs> wow. All right. Well, yeah. guess well, you know. Yeah. I think I, I paired back between my wife and, and, and my political advisors who were screaming at me 
by 1994, I probably put up about four billboards. Wow. <laughs> It wasn't much, but I had to have those billboards up there. There you go. That's, that, that was the trick, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, it worked. Yep. <laughs> it never got me beat. That's true. Must must have. That must have been it. So. <laughs> um, let's see. So, what were you thinking when you walked into the state house for your first day in office? I was. Uh, I was a little uh, overwhelmed okay. and, and in awe of the process. And, uh, in fact, Bob Garden, who was the president pro tem of the Senate at the time <laughs> and had worked hard for the reelection of his incumbent senator, Jim Abraham, came over on election day and congratulated me and spoke to me. <laughs> and uh, it was like, wow, I mean, that was nice of him. That was really thoughtful. Yeah. So uh, it it was it was impressive, and I yeah it was like I I need to take this seriously, and one I uh, I had advice one of the people that I valued their advice was Bob Rock who had served as lieutenant governor and had presided over the Senate, uh, a, a a good a good decent man who uh, didn't fare so well with. Uh, um, political coverage or the press. He wasn't a darling of the press. Okay. Some later uh, governors and uh, uh, and lieutenant governors. But he, he advised me, you know, uh, learn from your elders. Yeah. And there was certainly at that time a, a little bit of a mystique about don't go too fast here. Don't be too full of yourself. And uh, so... Watch, watch, and listen to those who've served here for a while. And the uh, the other thing, the other advice was figure out who tells you the truth and who stands by their commitment. Yeah. And not everybody in a legislative body does. That may be a shock to you, but <laughs> <laughs> maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> or some waiver. I'll say some waiver more than others. Okay. But you over within a couple of years two, three years, you learn who you can rely on, whose word is good, both in the chamber and the hallway, the lobbyists. You, you just simply learn who, who gives you pretty much straight shooting and will tell you not only their side, but will listen to your side or, if it's a lobbyist, tell you what the opposing view is. I mean, they'll give you the, the full picture. And that was always important to me. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And uh, so what were your expectations for the legislative process? And were they, uh, was the process more or less complicated than you expected? Uh, Having taught government, I thought I knew it. And uh, I have to say, living through the legislative process, it's far more complicated than than what I taught. Sure. Uh, it, it's, and it's hard to teach how complicated it is. It's hard for the press to depict uh, it accurately because there's so many things, there's so many personal interactions and so many, uh, the, the things that happen not in the chamber but are uh, discussions, and I'm not talking about secret down and dirty deals. I'm right. just talking about 
that a lot of finding common ground is is found in conversations not on the floor of the Senate, but you know, in, uh, after the session or any number of ways. And again, that require if you're going to have a bipartisan type of operation. That requires people, uh, Democrats and Republicans, to talk to each other, uh, not just in the Senate chamber. Yeah. Uh, they got to visit with each other other places, too. Right. Sure. So that was, that was important, and, and uh, I learned that. Yeah, okay. And, uh, Lizzie, how did you know the needs and wants of your constituents? Oh, we would do those uh, silly mailers where you ask questionnaire that you mail out okay. yourself. Uh, I don't. A, a lot of public appearances, like uh, third house sessions, were were very popular back then and very viable. And uh, and again, both Democrats and Republicans would show up. You you didn't have people boycotting. Yeah. Change your third house station or the legal women voters uh, station for the community. Uh, you didn't have people stay away because they felt they were um, biased or that they were going to pick on you. Yeah. Uh, so you a lot of public forum opportunities. I like I liked public forums a lot. I sure. like the uh, personal interaction of talking to people back home right so that that was the measure i didn't uh run around polling on things uh nor uh, there i was always uh, kind of <clears throat> skeptical of legislators who would say i got ten thousand cards saying don't raise taxes <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it's like yeah <laughs> Uh, who all, you know, <laughs> first of all, you probably ask a question like <laughs> that led them to don't raise my taxes. But even if you didn't, I mean, what do you expect from people? Right. Yeah. Damn few are going to say raise, raise my taxes. Although, you know, like the Ball State public opinion polls, even here in the 21st century, you know, they get. Uh, public opinion responses that show uh, 35%, 40% who are willing to increase funding for education in Indiana. Yeah. I, I was always struck in my district, which had the small Anderson University in it, and, and my, uh, that, that, that those people valued education and valued higher education more than than was realized that, that that the even the parents who had not gone on to higher education aspired for that for their children. Yeah, they sure. Very much. Uh, there were uh, the, the the people I went to high school with who decided on other careers and went to work right out of high school. A lot of their hopes and dreams were about their kids uh, doing more than going through high school. Yeah. I was always very touched by that uh, and, and realized how important that was. Education was very important. 
I don't think that's totally distinctive of Madison County at the time at all. Uh, right. But it, it was significant. So. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, do you remember the first bill that you sponsored? Oh, goodness. <laughs> if not, that's okay. But I always uh, ask. Let's see. <laughs> I, I don't. I, I, there were some minor bills okay. uh, early on. Uh, but pri- the primary bill that, that I would uh, either file or go on with somebody was the license branch reform. I mean, I did. Uh, <clears throat> I had said we're going to reform the license branch, and I felt compelled to try to accomplish that. Sure. Uh, in that, in the, I mean, if you're going to run for office and tell them you're going to do something, you better do everything you can to get it done, even if you're in the minority. And I, at this point, let me stop and say, I spent 15 years in the, in the, every one of those years was in the minority. Okay. Yeah. So, so you did have to learn how to work, uh, work with Republicans and either convince them to be supportive of your ideas, or in many cases, go on board with their ideas. Right. And the license branch reform, which doesn't occur, that legislation doesn't pass until either 87 or 88, it was in 87 or 88. Uh, I was uh, on the uh, conference committee report with Senator Larry Borst from uh, on the Republican side. In the Senate, it was Senator Borst and, and I right. on the conference committee report. <clears throat> and uh, we finally got a bill and, and uh, got it to the floor of the Senate. Yeah, and, okay. and the House, and it passed. And I, 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 to the, I'm trying to re- remember whether it finally passed in 87 or 88, and I just can't remember. I But I do remember her. And it, sure enough, it, it, you will remember the governor's election was carried by Evan Bayh in 88. Sure. Um, what, what happened was, and in fact, the, the license branch reform really hadn't kicked into full effect by then, but the uh, Republican organization was very unhappy that Bob Orr, the, uh, the governor who was re- going out of office, had signed the bill, basically ending Republican county chairman's <laughs> income from license branches. And there, <clears throat> I'm not, Evan By won the election, make no mistake about it. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and was a terrific campaigner. He won the election. It didn't hurt that the Republican county chairman were less enthused than ever about whether whether their <laughs> county went Republican or not. Yeah, their job was ending. So uh, it was a reform that was long overdue. And for all the people who uh, lament about their wait time in a BMV office today and so forth, whatever they complain about, oh, they don't know how bad. <laughs> It could be. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so that that was an accomplishment, and I was very uh, proud to get that done. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. There, there another piece of legislation that I was co-author on uh, 
was uh, Senate Bill 1. That comes later, not in the first term, but later, which was bank reform. Oh, okay. Uh, and which allowed for cross-county banking and allows for the banking system we have today. And I, um, I have good days and bad days uh, reflecting on the wisdom of <laughs> me being a proponent of what we have today. Oh, okay. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, it, the, the, it was Indiana by that time was like one of I don't know eight states that didn't have cross county banking and uh, the growth of banks and so forth. I mean, it was it was a tide that was going to happen sooner or later, and it was sort of like, well, let's do it on the best terms we can and on terms where we hope we can save. <laughs> community banks right uh, and uh, that's been difficult <laughs> difficult to do there are still some uh, community banks locally owned banks but damn few uh, so it, it I have positive and negative feelings about that legislation sure uh, okay um, let's see what differences did you notice between members of the House and Senate? <laughs> now, this is a question that you ought to do an off-the-record. You ought to ask <laughs> former House members and Senator members to be totally candid. Well, on this I'll be honest. I think most of them have been pretty candid regardless. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's pretty funny to hear uh, the back and forth, actually. Yeah. Uh, the... Uh, and the House members would tell you, you know, we we take action, we get things done, and the senators talk it to death. They <laughs> agonize and spend all a whole session agonizing about everything. <laughs> and there's some truth to that, uh, but uh, there there was de there's definitely a difference between the two. Yeah, uh, uh, the the size makes it so to some extent. Um, you get. Uh, less, I think, less attention to detail, more uh, more flurry of activity in the house, right? Uh, and uh, the and at, at least in the early in the eighties, the caucuses and the caucus leadership was more controlling in the house than in the senate. Okay. Over time, that's changed. And I, I, I'm not around them, and I don't know which is more controlling anymore. But the, the centralization of decision making and leadership has occurred in, in both chambers. Yeah. Uh, at this point, in the eighty, uh, there when I first went to the Senate, you had senators, Republicans, and Democrats who filed bills in their name. By the time I left the Senate. If you didn't have a Republican as the first author or the first Senate uh, or first sponsor of a bill, it, it was in trouble. Okay. It was in big trouble. Yeah. Uh, so th there was another evolution away from, you know, sort of this bilateral, you can pass bills, we can pass bills, because we're really just interested in the substance of the legislation. Right. By the 1990s, it was... Where's the Republican on your bill, and and shouldn't he be the first author on your bill? Wow. So, uh, yeah, it evolved over time, and and it was an erosion 
uh, of I, I, the one the thing that always uh, astounded me, and I would every every session when the rules would come out for the session, and the president pro tem and over in the house the speaker would inject some new rules to strengthen their power. In the Senate, I would always ask the majority caucus, "Why are you voting for this? You're giving up your rights. You know, you you're surrendering some of your influence and power to to the leader." Right. Uh, and uh, but they would, and and thus we have what we have today. Wow. And you do have. I mean, you, the, I believe the Senate Republicans, uh, for example, caucus and won't. Bring a, won't allow a bill to come to a vote unless a majority of their caucus approves it. Yeah. It, it, it may be even a higher barrier than that, but it's like if they go to caucus with their 38 members or what, 39 members, and only, only 17 of them support it, then it doesn't get a vote on the floor. Well, that's pretty detrimental to debate and so forth. Right, right. Uh, uh, there's been a centralization, at, and that's even more obvious at the national level, uh, you know, of who runs the place. And and I think it's detrimental to the system. Uh, there ought to be more independence of action. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um I don't know if other people have made that observation. Uh, though I, I respect uh, Bob Garton. And Garton, let's see, he was, I think he was the uh, president for Tim of the Senate the whole time it was there. And I do respect him and have high regard for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he succumbed to the centralization of power okay. over time. Uh, so, uh, it, it just, it, it, it was a much more, the Senate particularly, that, I mean, I got started on this because that was a, a, a difference between the Senate and the House. Yeah. Uh, the Senate was 50 senators with uh, varying degrees of independence and influence, uh, and, and sort of initiative, individual initiative. The House had, as time went, Along was uh, caucus driven, yeah, more disciplined, okay, uh, that kind of thing. Now there were exceptions in the House. Jerry Bales, may he rest in peace, uh, was a Republican who was a surprise for everybody uh, all the time, and and often a very you know, just a, a wonderful. <laughs> um, you got to have some mavericks, and he was good at it, and and did it with humor. So okay, <laughs> he, so you would have occasional mavericks there. Rare, and in the Senate, you used to have more independent votes, and now you have this caucus rule about the majority of the caucus has to prove it, or you won't call the bill down. Right. Um, let's see. Now, did you have a sense of how people would vote prior to actually voting? Yes, pretty much so. Okay. I mean, it's, and that's 
I don't know. I can't speak to the house and the difference there. There could, there was a potential for more surprises there because there were a hundred of them. Yeah. In the Senate, there's fifty. Uh, it's pretty easy to count them as long as, <laughs> as people are telling the truth. Now, were there last-minute changes? Uh, even on the floor, say yes. Mm-hmm. There were times when somebody would say they vote for something. And you'd look up there, and they were voting against it. We had a senator once who had an amendment on the in the Senate, uh, presented the amendment, uh, there, and it was it was not a very good amendment. But okay. listen to the debate. The vote went up on the board. He took a point of personal privilege to explain his vote. Went up to <laughs> and said, you know. I've listened to everybody. I'm going to vote against this amendment. <laughs> so the vote was zero to 50. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's one of those good laughs. And he, he was good-natured about it. Uh, but, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, he was in the majority. He's, he was in the majority. Put that amendment up there. And after everybody sort of questioned it, came said, I, I'm not. I'm not very pleased with this amendment myself. I'm going to vote against it, zero to fifty. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> so I, I give. I won't. I'm not going to give you the name. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, it's up to you. Yeah. Somebody else might remember it. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. So, I know you kind of had touched upon this a little bit already. Uh, through various topics we've discussed so far, but uh, what were the interactions like between Democrats and Republicans, and did that change over time, and how much so? Well, there was in the like the state Senate. You mean yes? Yeah, there was a, this evolution away from collaboration, uh, slowly, gradually, but even what even while I'm there, I, uh, I may tell you this is she forgets to she and a guy named bill swords who was a republican they used to throw a spaghetti dinner uh for uh, the back benchers for uh at the uh, 15 16 18 legislative senators a third of the senate would come to this spaghetti dinner toward the end of the session when things needed to get done when agreements need to be made just to just to improve the environment, just to, to uh, you know, to keep things civil. Yeah. And other, there were other events like that. There were collaborative events socially uh, as well as the stuff that went on in the state house. Uh, I don't know. If it, uh, there, there were smaller groups. I can remember we were part of a smaller group that socialized that was like six Republicans and three of us. Uh, some of some of that stuff just did go on. As a matter of fact, I mean, it, and in fact, each session it was like, when are we going to have the, when are we going to get together, you know? And it was like, no, we really mean we want to get together. Uh, so that... I'm trying to think if the I left in 97 after the 97 session and I would have to say by then most of that had frittered away wow 96 97 it just did over time 
Yeah. And uh, as as races became, in that case, at least statewide, again, you didn't have the local Senate race in Madison County. You had, oh, who's pouring money into which candidate in Madison County? Yeah. And, and, and one of the reasons that that happened was there weren't that many competitive districts anymore. So it, uh, you didn't have... Uh, interest groups and citizens spreading money out around the state, you had what are the four competitive Senate races this time. Right. And all, all the money would pour into those districts. So you had, and and so it became a state thing, and, and the animosities, I think, got worse. Uh, and for one thing, uh, state uh, you know the the leaders of the caucus didn't care who you were running against. They cared, you know, how can we uh, convince people <laughs> that that person is terrible person? You know that there was no personal connection for somebody to uh, for a caucus leader or somebody to come into a district and trash the the opponent. Uh, I'm not saying that happened on a widespread basis, but the, at an earlier time, yeah, you'd have the Senate Republican leader come and endorse Jim Abraham for senator, yeah, but it it wasn't uh, it wasn't aggressive. It didn't get uh, over hyper. You know, it, you didn't overstate things beyond belief. Yeah, and as time went on. Uh, it, it has become more that way. But and the biggest problem there is there just aren't enough competitive districts. If you had 25 Senate races up and 15 of them were competitive, uh, right. you'd have everybody's resources and attention spread out around various parts of the state. And I'm not kidding. Uh, there aren't, in the Senate, there aren't four competitive races each, each time. Yeah. There aren't four. Wow. There might be three, two, sometimes one. Uh, and if you look at the margins in the other races, if I'm, what I say would hold up. You know, people are winning by four to 12,000 votes in those other races. So all the attention gets focused on three to four races. And the House has become the same way, really. Yeah. I mean, I there you probably have uh, maybe 10, 12 competitive races out of 100. <clears throat> and why? They're gerrymandered. It, it all, for me, it flows back to the gerrymandered districts. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, let's see. How did your legislative service affect your family life? Uh, it took it took its toll. Uh, There was time taken away from home and and actually also from uh, my occupation as an attorney. Yeah. Uh, My business life and my home life suffered, uh, and they did suffer. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, uh, you know, there was a time when attorneys ran for the General Assembly to, to help their law practice. By the 90s, that was no longer the case. We, had, we were having too many special sessions. 
uh, we had a couple of years there where we were in session uh, five months, one of them basically six months out of the year. That's not a way to run a law practice. Yeah. So everybody, they used to complain about, you know, the damn lawyers, all the lawyers running the legislature. That that devolved, that disintegrated. And I don't know what the percentages are now. I don't know how it breaks out. But uh, the, the public image of a bunch of lawyers down in Indianapolis is not true. Okay, yeah, yeah. It is not true. Right. And for better or worse, I mean, it's it's clearly, you know, a a diverse citizen legislature. But it doesn't hurt to have some attorneys in these bodies uh, who who understand the the importance of the precision of language in the legislative bodies, which to some extent, for a long time, by the way, was the difference between the House and the Senate. Mm-hmm. You get you get bills that came out of the House that go, uh, this could stand a little cleaning up. <laughs> <laughs> now they will rebel against that, but it was like, holy cow, this thing is, you know, yeah. But somebody threw something against the wall. If if we're serious about passing something, we got to make this legal, right? <laughs> So, sure. So, um, you know, the, the, the body itself has devolved into far fewer lawyers, I believe, and I don't know where everybody comes from anymore. Yeah. Yeah. But anyhow, it, yes, my law practice suffered and personal life suffered. Uh, I, I uh, went through a divorce in 1987. Okay. Uh, so, Fifteen years took its toll. Sure. And so, when did you remarry? Nineteen eighty-nine, November of nineteen eighty-nine, the day after Organization Day of nineteen eighty-nine in November. Okay. And, and fortunately, I can tell you that was the day after Organization Day was November twenty-second. Okay. Which is my wedding anniversary. Yeah. I better remember it. Yeah. So. Uh, we got married then. Yeah. And I married Vice Simpson, who was the incumbent state senator from Senate District 40. Okay. Which was Monroe County and Brown County, for the most part. And so what was it like serving with uh, your wife then? Uh, uh, in some ways different, and not as not as different as the as our fellow senators thought it might be. Okay. We had 148 legislators who were basically going, now, how's this going to (laughs) work? Yeah. Yeah. Who is this? (laughs) Uh, And we maintained separate residences, 93 miles apart. Okay. I and Anderson, she and Bloomington. uh, And I, we served, we co-served for eight years. Uh, and we did have some people, most of it on the Republican side, who really were concerned about that and were concerned that, uh, yeah, we'd be voting as a twosome. Uh, that was not the case. Uh, okay. We, were, we represented our districts, and I'm very proud of that. Yeah. She is, too. We represented our districts. Yeah, our political views were 
in many ways philosophically in the same general area but and i'll give you a specific example there was a bill to uh, abolish or suspend the auto excise tax on new cars uh, to uh, improve sales of cars to pick up the economy i voted for it Mm -hmm. Uh, vi was I, I won't say she was appalled, but <laughs> <laughs> she didn't see the need yeah. for a, to carve out a special uh, designation for uh, vehicles, not to, uh, uh, what was it, the, the sales tax that they, we weren't going to collect on them? Uh, yeah, we were going uh, excise tax on the automobiles. Excise tax was not to... Uh, but we we were on opposite sides there. Yeah. Uh, 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 we are on opposite sides on the death penalty. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, just on a social issue, even. Uh, so we would have split votes, and they said so we'd vote together on a lot of things. But uh, it, there was no. Uh, collaboration. Yeah, know, we're going to cast two votes for it. Right, right. That that didn't happen. There was some concern that I would influence by. Okay. <laughs> little did they know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a period where there was hmm, two years. I, we were both on Saint Finance, which is was a body of about I don't know fifteen or thirteen. 13 legislators and one of the staff people even was concerned that this block of two could impact the outcome of something in Senate finance. Okay. Yeah, they were tallying how we voted. Uh, that was a staff person who was overwrought about it. Wow. Uh, to wit, and of course the answer was, do you know Larry Borst? <laughs> <laughs> He isn't going to allow, uh, you know, people to pull a fast one on him. Or, sure. I mean, it, it was like you don't think Larry Borst can keep that, uh, keep an eye on that, and it just didn't happen that way. And we'd have split votes in Senate Finance. So, and over time, then I, I'd say after about three years, two and a half, three years, uh, people. Uh, that was a non-issue. People were, were over that. Okay. <clears throat> now, every once in a while, you'd have, like we'd have a House Republican at dinner one night, go, now, you you two are married? <laughs> <laughs> how does that work? We generally had a guy. How does that work? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so every once in a while, we'd have somebody who went, the Senate became very comfortable with it. Although I remember there was a bill that Vi was a proponent for and carrying. And we had just passed a bill that a, that a Republican had passed uh, that was uh, had some, that everybody had some concerns about and the, the Republican said, we'll clean this up over in the House. And then this bill that Vi had and a bunch of Republicans got up and started saying, this cannot go further. This, 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 we can't. This, we can't allow this to go be cleaned up in the house. And I was assistant leader at that point. And as assistant leader, I saw one of my roles as defending 
our caucus members, and I went to the microphone and said, um, now wait a minute. Didn't we just have a discussion about a bill like uh, that one of your guys was carrying? And so I, you and our caucus thought I was coming to the defense of my wife. It was, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, there, it was, it happened, you know, circumstances were that it was a bill she was a proponent of. Right. <laughs> it wasn't. I, I saw my role as uh, very definitely to defend uh, against uh, unfairness, Democrats uh, in our caucus. Yeah. And I did it for other senators other times, too. Uh, you know, if they were either being made fun of or uh, just getting ripped apart for uh, some bill or some amendment, most of our, <laughs> most of us function through amendments. And it was sometimes you just had to go, uh, wait a minute, folks. <laughs> Can we just kind of look at this and, you know, which, uh, I don't know, sometimes that worked, sometimes it, a lot of times it didn't. But I, I didn't like for things to just get, I didn't like to see people get run over. I'll say that. Yeah, okay. Well, that's, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Now, did you and Vi ever sort of debate each other in a committee and, or whatever on, on like a bill or an issue or or on the floor or uh not on the floor i can't recall on the floor doing that okay at, at home, i can guarantee you we did at home <laughs> yeah yeah well, naturally there, there yeah no lack of debate or you know <laughs> but, or you know also suggesting positively things wording in the legislation or something and so we certainly had conversations. It wasn't that, uh, you know, once we left the state house, there was no political conversation. Right. We, we definitely had conversations. Uh, but uh, we didn't differ on the floor. Uh, we would cast differing votes in that Senate Finance Committee. That's the only one where we served together. Okay. Uh, I, we, there might have been an amendment that I would have voted against that she voted for. Something like that may have occurred, possibly. Uh, but it wasn't. It just wasn't. It, it turned out to be fairly, this, this whole marriage and being jointly, the two of us serving for eight years in the Senate, uh, in that respect, turned out to be uh, pretty routine, unremarkable. Yeah. Uh, not that big a deal. So, yeah, it 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 was it was a pleasant experience, and, and when we departed uh, at different times in our careers, uh, the Senate was very kind to us. Resolution, was, they were very kind, starting with uh, Bob Garton in my case, and and, and when she left in two thousand twelve, uh, they were. They were very respectful and very kind. Um, let's see. So thinking a uh, big picture now a bit, um, what were the most controversial legislative issues during your time in the assembly that you remember? Oh, boy. Um, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I was, uh, one of the obvious ones uh, that went on for 
half a dozen years was gaming and gambling. Okay. Uh, the riverboat, well, first horse racing, which I was very invested in because of Anderson and the track at Anderson. Yeah. Uh, cared a great deal about. Uh, so it starts with uh, horse racing uh, and then lottery and then riverboats. Uh, and uh, that consumed, in, in some ways, an inordinate amount of time from the, uh, the late 80s uh, into, uh, you know, into the year 2000. Yeah. At least. Uh, and uh, so gaming, gambling, horse racing, the lottery, that one. Um, you, you can tell by my response, uh, it really wasn't, it shouldn't have been that big a debate all the time, but it was. Uh, on the other hand, uh, issues that I care deeply about, and I think Indiana has gone the wrong direction on, is right to work, mm-hmm. which... Uh, transpired and in fact precipitated that house walkout in 19 I don't know 97 I it may have been in 97 when that occurred or not it, it's it's the same year that the Colts hosted the Super Bowl that Indianapolis yeah and it it it, it came up every year yeah actually and then when the Republican majorities got big enough, uh, they they decided to push it on through. Uh, so right to work and labor issues like that. Uh, I, I both of us always had the philosophy follow the money. So both of us cared a lot about the budget and how it was put together. Uh, I was an alternate member of the state budget committee for about six years or something like that. Uh, in the 80s. Vi uh, was first an alternate member later on and then full member and then chaired the state budget committee uh, when uh, the budget director was a Democrat. So both of us had a lot of involvement in in money. In where does the money flow to? Right. Uh, in the end, it is all about the money. And so we were both very supportive of, again, public education, higher education, um, um, health care, um, the welfare system, uh, and how it could be better implemented in families and children. I was coaching me here a little. Uh, those, those issues, uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, at uh, one time, the, whether we should have an elected school superintendent or not was a pretty hot issue uh, that has now fallen by the wayside. Okay. Uh, I don't know. That, uh, is that enough? Yeah. Fully, yeah. No, that's, that's fine, yeah. yeah whatever. The big, thing, the big yeah. thing was appropriation and where the money's going. Right. Uh, and that kind of thing. Yeah, okay. Um, let's see, is there a particular piece of legislation that you remember that kind of took the most time that you had to work on the most? Oh, I, the license branch thing. I, I also uh, co-authored uh, legislation that created the local economic development organizations, the LIDOs, 
which were the the beginnings of the the e economic development corporations. Uh, that was something uh, created, I think, under Governor O'Bannon. Uh, local economic, it was county by county, uh, creation of, of, a, of a board that would promote economic development county by county. Okay. And that took some doing. Um, uh, the bank bill. The bank bill was uh, another one of those. Uh, th there are issues that like never seem to go away. Yeah. <laughs> and the bank bill definitely had a lifespan of about six years. Uh, of course, there are other issues that never go away, like abortion. Right. We would. We were very supportive of, of state parks and local parks, park and recreation funding uh, at the state level and local level. Okay. Uh, so that and that took a lot of convincing sometimes. Yeah. That that's 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 pretty much yeah. That and the other one uh, that that consumed a lot of my energy was the the first the establishment of the horse racing track, and then the subsequent how fitting it in with river boats and how that was going to work. Uh, because I felt that the state had made a commitment to horse racing before. Well, they did. They made a commitment before river boats, and then along comes river boats, which were going to just destroy the horse racing industry if uh, if there weren't some kind of uh, adjustments made. So that that was, very, and then after the, the then after that, there were attempts to. Uh, basically, we worked out a system where the horse racing tracks were uh, uh, subsidized, assisted uh, in some revenues as the uh, as the riverboat industry group. And there came a time then when some people just decided they were getting too much subsidy, and they were just going to end the subsidy. Well, that that was that would have killed them. It would have yeah. killed them again. So there's the gaming interests get crosswise with each other at times, and do I mean it's like people. Uh, there's there's enough here for all of you to to benefit. Uh, quit trying to undermine the other industry. So sure that that uh, was a project always. Yeah, over over about a. Uh, eight year, at least eight years, maybe ten years, for me. Okay. Um, so, and then, oh, I'll give you a good example. Yeah, go for it. A bipartisan collaboration. Sure. Uh, a local issue. We had uh, somebody who wanted to create a landfill locally, and the constituencies were very opposed to it. And it was it, it was not a good site. It just wasn't a good site. Which close to the Anderson Airport, and if you know anything about airports and birds at landfills, this doesn't work well. The other thing was it was within I don't know a quarter mile of Kilbuck Creek, which feeds into White River, and then it was like, whoa, this is crazy. Well, that came up every year 
and every year it came closer and closer to being approved. And in fact, it was approved at the uh, state level, I think. Uh, they had signed off on it, and uh, Pat Kiley, who was in the House, Republican from Anderson and I, uh, worked for about three or four years on creating local legislation that gave, the, like the county commissioners uh, or the county council, a, a sort of a say over the location of landfills in their county. Uh, and Pat Kiley was, he was chairman of House Ways and Means, uh, Republican. And I mean, Kiley was very in influential. And uh, the two of us worked together on uh, that issue. Yeah. And, and it was a local issue. So, I mean, we weren't running against total opposition, but it was, it was a challenge. Uh, I, I found working with my, my House colleagues in the House, I enjoyed working with. That was Pat Kiley. It was originally Craig Campbell, who is one, of, along with Larry Borst, is the authors of Pure Mutual Betting, of uh, getting the whole horse racing thing up on the radar and going. Craig Campbell and then Roland Weber, who I served with, who, who was a very distinctive, uh, eloquent, uh, well, <laughs> I'm not sure he was eloquent, but he was, <laughs> yes, colorful. Uh, God love him. He's since passed away. Uh, and he was a Democrat. But uh, uh, Kylie, as a Republican and I, we, we rarely disagreed on things going forward. Uh, even in budget matters, we kind of made sure we were in agreement on things as they related to at least East Central Indiana. So, well, I did that. I belabored that. No, that's that's fine. That's you know, the more information, the better. So, um, let's see. Well, my next question then is, uh, what, what was the biggest hurdle that you had to overcome during your time in office? Hmm. Probably just being in the minority and dealing with being in the minority and psychologically. And trying to deal with being in the minority. Yeah. As I told Erlene Rogers, after about four or five years, I told Erlene Rogers, you know, I begin to understand what a minority uh, treatment is. And then I quickly added, now, as soon as I walk out of the state house, I don't have to deal with that, and you do. But I, I remember saying to her, uh, for the first time, I, I get the sense of, uh, you know, am I being disregarded, disrespected, not paid attention to, or worse. You know, none of that is worse. It's not fair to compare that to uh, the experience of racial discrimination. But it... But minority status is a wake-up call. Yeah. Spending 15 years in a minority status, it's, it's difficult. And, and we can't, it, it was wearing. It was wearing, and uh, when I left the Senate, I was ready to leave the Senate. 
I was ready to leave. So, um, <clears throat> but uh, it was difficult. It was, it was difficult to be told, well, you can't have your name on uh, first author on a bill or don't have a House Democrat send you a bill where you're the first sponsor. I mean, as, as the erosion of, of any uh, independence of action occurred, it was more and more frustrating. Yeah, so I guess you just kind of got worn out, and that's why you kind of left? Uh, yes. Yeah, and the, but, and the other thing, I mean, I doubt if I would have run for a fifth term. Uh, I doubt if I would have run for a fifth term. Uh, but uh, in the three-fourths of the way through the fourth term, in the third year of the fourth term, which is 90, 1997, uh, Frank O'Bannon is elected governor, and uh, it, I it was uh, sound. They sounded me out about moving to the executive branch and chairing the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission. And I, after agonizing about it, I I did. I, I accepted. And in mid June of '97, no, June uh, actually June 30th, July 1st of '97. I left, resigned from the Senate, and went over to chair the Utility Regulatory Commission. Right. So that was the departure. I had a lot of fond memories, uh, and the fond memories survive a lot better than the negative ones do. And in fact, a lot of the negative ones are now kind of funny. <laughs> it's, it's things you can laugh about. Uh, but at the time, some of you didn't feel like laughing about. I was, I was tired of one of the, one of this. I don't know if you have other people, uh, legislators say this. I was tired of other people controlling my schedule. Yeah. You could okay. you couldn't make plans for vacation in May or June. Yeah. Because you were likely to have a find a, a special session. You even I mean you could some weeks you couldn't. Uh, decide you would you didn't know whether you're going to be in station or not station and there's something about living a fairly independent life and it's very frustrating to depend on somebody else to tell you what your schedule is sure uh, i don't and, and now over a while that just got to be totally wary too much right right yeah i mean i've heard some other legislators talk about how it kind of wearies you down after a while serving there and all the, especially if you don't live close to Indianapolis, it's right. pretty tough. Um, let's see. So I have a couple uh, more specific questions based on some things I kind of found, some old newspapers. And then I have just uh, a handful of big picture questions, uh, okay. just kind of reflecting on your service. Um because I've kind of imposed on your time here. Oh, no. I mean, this is, believe me, you. <laughs> I've had some really long interviews. It just <laughs> depends on the person. I, I've, I've had some that go well over four hours just because oh my gosh. someone just has so many things they want to talk about. So it's yeah. totally fine, part, part of the process. Um, well, let's answer your questions then. Okay. So um, I read something about that you might have been involved with a little bit um, called the Living Will Bill. Do you remember that at all? Oh, my gosh. 
I, uh, um, and, and helping create the living will legislation for Indiana? Uh, yeah. I, my, you know, she's telling me I did. <laughs> yeah, I did. I don't remember it being controversial, though. If it wasn't controversial, I don't remember, okay. I remember a lot of the things that I did. Uh, I yeah. Think it, it's the controversies that you remember. Yeah, I think I helped create the living will uh, statutes for Indiana. Yeah, okay. Cause I, but I, that, that one was pretty clean and straightforward. Okay. Because I, w- I noticed that was covered in the newspapers uh, several times in the 90s. Uh, and uh, yeah. was just curious to bring it up and see what you remembered about it. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that one was not a difficult... Uh, trying to think who conjured up why that was a bad bill. I'm sure there were opponents. But yeah, the newspaper had talked about there was some debate going on and that the chances of the bill passing were uncertain, um, but... Uh, yeah, it, it, uh, I'm guessing that it was the far conservative religious groups that were fearful about it placing, I don't know, okay. decision-making. Oh, yeah, it's coming back, it's coming back. The termination of life. Uh, yeah, uh, who should determine when one's life is terminated? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think there were, there were groups who were concerned that we would let any, that, that death was a natural thing and no one should interfere okay. with that uh, kind of thing. That, that is coming back to me now. Uh, that that was one of the issues. Uh, you know, we're going to have people making life and death decisions for other people, and you know they have every right to stay in comatose status for seven years. And uh, yeah, I remember now. Okay. Uh, and yeah, I obviously thought there was a more reasonable approach to things. Yeah. And so, what exactly did the living will bill do? Well, it, it, it allowed you to designate who would make determinations about life and death situations for you. Okay, yeah. Uh, and, and make them official record. Uh, and that, I mean, I, I, as I remember, hospitals uh, wanted this uh, because they were constantly put in the position of having to make that decision you know when do you pull life support systems off when do you not yeah. what medications uh, do, do you have to try the most extreme medications uh or inject bleach into somebody for covid or whatever <laughs> okay oh no that's that we had we didn't have discussions that crazy uh, <laughs> so but that yeah the medical and especially the hospitals and even the nursing home, yeah, hospitals and nursing homes were saying, help us, you know, we're getting in the middle of family feuds and and battles with, uh, you know, yeah, yeah uh, even battles from prosecuting attorneys stopping somebody from terminating the life of somebody because they shouldn't be allowed to do that. So it, it was, a, you know, it was institutionalizing a process that involved the family or whomever you designated to make a choice that you weren't capable of making. Yeah. 
it, it, it was really very straightforward, very simple. Uh, yeah, I, you know, and I'm sure there would be people who say, you know, and now it's devolved into assisted suicide mm-hmm. and those kind of things. No, it hadn't. Not in Indiana. Yeah. Hasn't. So, yeah, I, I'd forgotten that one. I, and, yeah, I, I take some pride in in doing that and, and being on, on what I think was the right side. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, let's see. Another one that I saw pop up in the newspapers a few times was about a bill prohibiting local governments from regulating weapons. Yes. Uh, you, you, yes, you've struck a strong chord. So what was I, going on? I, yeah. I, I, I believe very much for, in many cases, in home rule, in local government. Yeah. I was a, I was a defender of the county and, and, and local officials and their decision-making, and the uh, preemption of that decision-making should, uh, should be taken very carefully. Now, there are some cases... Where it's 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 become what what's the issue? What's your agenda? Whether you believe in home rule or not, and and now I see that some of them want local school boards to determine whether somebody's licensed to teach or not, and it's, it's like oh wait a minute, <laughs> there are some things that require statewide standards, uh, but yeah, the the uh, idea of preempting local decision-making really uh, was offensive to me. And, and here, here is an example of, like, really, we need state legislation uh, to ban ordinances locally that would eliminate using plastic bags at grocery stores. You know, it, Monroe County had uh, tried to eliminate everybody walking out with 14 plastic bags that then blow all over everywhere. Okay. Uh, and uh, had an ordinance to ban them, and uh, you know, but we got to stop that. We can't, we can't let that happen. Right. Uh, really. But, <laughs> and but it was, it was even. It's like when the state legislature gets into Indianapolis business about uh, rent, rental assistance, rental controls, or uh, landlord-tenant relationships. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't you think maybe Indianapolis is a little distinctive from um, Ripley County on landlord-tenant relations? Sure. Uh, maybe we ought to allow some freeway there. I don't know. It, you've, so, yeah, I believe in home rule. But you've triggered the, uh, another major point I would make is there are very, very few absolutes in the political arena. There are not very many. It's a hundred percent here. We got. We know. We know what's right, and that the, the issues that have devolved into a hundred percent are very, very destructive to the system. I believe, and I would count abortion there. Mm-hmm. I would count gun usage there. Uh, the uh, the one. The most the, the newly emerging one, freedom, individual freedom. Uh, there there is no such thing as uh, as absolute freedom, and uh, that you know that not not in a society that functions there isn't, and uh, the these issues are not 
zero-sum games to the majority of the electorate. Now, to some they are, I understand. But the, the people where there can be no abortions under any circumstances, really? Yeah, that that's not the real world. That's not what happens. Uh, guns, you can't tell me what guns I have where I carry them. That's, that's not a 21st century society. Uh, so, and this whole thing about uh, I and I alone will decide whether I get a vaccine or not, to hell with society. Uh, I'm sorry. So, I come from public service and a sense of community. Right. That we're all in this together, really. And yes, there's lots of room for individualism, especially in the American political system. It is not absolute. Yeah, so I mean, uh, do you feel that uh, compared to when you served in the General Assembly, do you feel that these conversations about the topics you mentioned have become more toxic then or are about the same more toxic. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, more toxic. Uh, it's, yeah, well, I, I don't, it just, uh, the accusations that fly around. Now, a lot of it's from individuals uh, outside the arena. But some, uh, sometimes legislators get way out there. And, and, and so there are legislators where things are absolute. I mean, there's some, some things they just, I, you know, can't tolerate, uh, but uh, insinuating, you know, a fellow legislator is a baby killer is way over the top. Right. Uh, that's that's totally unnecessary. Uh, it's uh, it's it's not it's not a fair representation of anybody, and it even I mean, it's just not even civil discourse. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with guns, you know, when you hate guns, you're going to abolish guns. No, <laughs> no one said anything about abolishing guns. It's the, you know, you will give them an inch, to, the next thing you know, your freedom is lost. Uh, so uh, th- those absolutes, even, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, uh, freedom of religion, there, there are limits to that. Right. And actually, the whole freedom of religion thing is getting a little uh, overstated. Witness the, uh, the legislation they passed, the Religious Freedom Act or whatever it was, and all the trouble they difficulty they got into after passing it and how to extricate themselves from it they, they, you know they, the Bill of Rights for the most part is not a hundred percent absolute this or that uh, there are exceptions uh, that have been divide, defined over time by Supreme Courts and do fluctuate uh, within a range but you know, this zero sum, you know, I, I win or I lose everything is not appropriate in the uh, political world. It isn't. 
Yeah. Which all gets back to you can win an election and you can lose an election. Sometimes you lose and you better come to terms with that. So uh, public service and common good and, you know, these are the rules under which we function are terribly important. Yeah, sure. Um, you you had some other things. Yeah. Maybe. So now, short answers. <laughs> no worries. Either way. Um, yeah. So looking at kind of these more uh, big picture, reflective questions on your service, uh, how would you summarize your time overall as a state legislator? Oh, positive, uh, highly positive experience and. I think I was uh, that my channel record is positive. I hope, uh, but it, a tremendous experience and uh, just uh, interacting with people and personalities that I did helped me to understand other perspectives, other views, other personalities. Enjoy other. Uh, people and personalities. One of the reasons I, I used to teach school and encourage people to run for office or get engaged in the political because it gives you wonderful stories. <laughs> you just have wonderful stories the rest of your life. Yeah. Uh, so that, that you can laugh about, some of which you don't laugh about, but you just, it's a, a mountain of stories. Uh, and it just like, and stuff you forget, like the living will thing. And oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, I wasn't. And oh, yeah, there were crazy people <laughs> on that one, too. So, <laughs> okay, next question. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, uh, you mentioned stories. Uh, what would you say is your favorite story from your time as a legislator? It could be a, a funny story or just anything. So. Mm. Uh, well, the the amendment story is pretty funny about the fifty to nothing defeat of his amendment. Yeah, These, uh, there are others that are that are quite funny, but. Uh, not for public consumption, okay. probably. Uh, but there was another, oh, the, there was an elected senator from northern Indiana. This was on abortion, I believe. Okay. And it was abortion bill, and it restricted decision-making. And this uh, female legislator went to the microphone and pointed her finger at everybody and said, you can't tell me what I can do with my body. You can't tell me this, and you can't. You men aren't going to tell me what to do. March back, sat down, and voted green for the abortion bill. <laughs> and it was like, ah, uh, did, did, did she push the wrong button? In fact, I think somebody even near her said, did, is, that, is that the vote? And it, yes. Oh, my yes. gosh. Yeah, it, the whole speech was, don't tell me what to do with my body. Don't tell me. Blah, 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 and vote, went back and voted for the bill. <laughs> <laughs> and it's little things like that. It, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, whoops. Uh, okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, 
And there were there were plenty of others. Sure, but, uh, I bet. So, um, what lessons, if any, did you learn from your experience? Um, tolerance, patience, to bias, scoffing. Uh, uh, I learned patience up to a point. I, I don't have the patience Vi does. Okay. Uh, I what I, but I I learned to appreciate other people and and uh, uh, enjoy enjoy. Uh, I I used to think to myself if I wrote a book about politics, uh, it would the, the title of it is if you're not laughing and enjoying yourself, you shouldn't be doing this. Because it, you know, don't don't do this to inflict pain on yourself. So I obviously see it as a pleasant experience. Having said that, I I learned uh, what I suspected. I I learned. I far preferred the executive branch to the legislative branch, uh, where at least chairing a commission in the executive branch, okay. where decisions could be made. Uh, you didn't have to, you know, spend six years trying to pull everybody together. Uh, the, I'm not as good at the legislative process, without question. I'm not as was not as good as Vi is. Vi is superb uh, at understanding a legislative body, how to function in it, and unlike I, who was managed to function in it for 17 years, uh, or 15 years, I'm sorry, for 15, it seemed like 17. For 15, uh, Bai was in the legislature for 28 years until she ran for lieutenant governor. Yeah. So uh, she she loved that arena, uh, and especially the, the conference committees. She loved that. Uh, but uh, I... Uh, wasn't I? Not just don't have quite the same disposition, and would re- re- rather say, um, "Okay, we've got five commissioners, and I got three votes. We're going to go in and pass this thing now." <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so, and it was more than just being in the majority. I mean, that it, therefore would I felt better in the majority yeah probably would have but now it's more about getting things it's about uh, getting things resolved and legislative process sometimes gets things resolved Uh, and sometimes it takes forever and at some point it's like I give up you know we're never going to reach agreement on stuff uh, and it, abortion is one of those issues because there are groups that won't settle for anything rather than total victory. Uh, but another, I, this one, I used to kid Luke Kinley about. Luke decided to take on mechanics liens one time and reform the mechanics liens process because uh, builders and everybody had an opinion. <laughs> I remember taking it on, and I told him, "Good luck." <laughs> About three years later, he said, should have listened to you. <laughs> There's some things that are eternal. I Having said there are no absolutes, there are some disputes that just never seem to get resolved. Yeah. 
dentists and dental hygienists, or chiropractors and doctors, their disputes are eternal. Yeah. <laughs> so, although they they make incremental changes, even they can make in, incremental changes. I, although I'm not sure that it, the mechanics lien bill legislation has been changed. <laughs> you might want to check on if anybody ever got that cleaned up. Maybe okay. <laughs> he lasted longer than I did. So, so 15 years was plenty, and yeah. I learned and learned a lot and benefited tremendously from it right. and enjoyed things so much. But 15 was plenty, and the executive branch was uh, a, a, a nice respite, a nice change. Yeah. Um, do you have any regrets as a legislator? Oh. Mm. oh, no, I often feel I should have, could have done more, uh, could have done more, should have done more. Sure. Uh, uh, yeah, I, mm, I, I obviously don't spend much time regretting or I would have popped, something would have popped into my mind, but um, no, no. Uh, now, if I, in at the time, I even had regrets about leaving uh, and second guessed myself. But within a year, I, I realized I was where I wanted to be and happy doing what I wanted to be and impact having an impact on major policy in Indiana, at least in the in the area of public utilities. Uh, yeah, which is is plenty. Was a big enough thing to specialize in. So, uh, no regrets, not really. Okay. Kind of, kind of wish I had had, uh, had done more. There was now. I'll I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. Okay. Um, let's see. What would you say was your proudest moment in the General Assembly? Dear. Hmm. Um, actually, it, it's kind of it, it. It was a proudest moment whenever I could get the majority of the chamber to to hear an argument, understand it, and accept it. Okay. To convince the proudest moments were convincing people to do something yeah, uh, or to stop something uh, it's, it's a stop something uh, and that could be over policy over you know this is bad policy or this is a bill that it, it just doesn't do what it says it's doing mm-hmm. and you know stop it, it it's, you're going to create more problems than you're going to solve or something like that or the you know do we really want to go that far, Senate? Uh, one of the people I respected on the other side was Les Duvall, uh, who was a Republican senator from Marion County for some time. And at the end of each session, he would get up and give us a speech on the, the changes we need to make. Okay. And most of them were, were, I mean, they were collaborative, positive, affirmative changes. He was right. Uh, he'd get maybe one out of ten of those changes made, but I respected that and always 
hope that people would listen to me when I was talking about the process in the same way. And the smaller and smaller your minority gets, the less and less people listen. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're, they're just simply fewer people willing to listen. Uh, and so, again, that was the frustrating part that said, you know, after 15 years, I, you know, going to the executive branch has a certain appeal to it. Um, you know, as chairman of the commission, whether they liked it or not, people did have to at least listen. <laughs> sure, yeah. They didn't have to agree, but they they did. They, they did. Most of them tried to listen. Uh, so uh, that that. But the the rewarding moments were mostly about uh, just getting a body with forty nine other people, at least half of them saying, "Yeah, he's got a point. That's a, that's a good point." We, the germane rule used to drive me crazy. The uh, majority, the minorities avenue is amendments and uh, or and in vice case the conference committee reports but the, the amendments is a vehicle for the minority and so for 15 years you're filing amendments and trying to convince and so forth uh garden uh, senator garden was occasionally fond of using the germane rule that this amendment is not allowed on this bill because it's not germane and sometimes he was right, and sometimes he was he was he was taking liberties because he didn't want to force his majority, his caucus, to vote on an amendment. So he'd get up and say it isn't germane, and I'd get up and question his germanity. Okay. <laughs> and, and and we and on occasion he would on one or two occasions he backed off. <laughs> so. Uh, occasionally would, but those victories are small. But it, it's about just listen. That you know that whole religious freedom legislation that they passed. Mm -hmm. If the majorities had listened to the minorities and and tried to, to create a language other than what they created, if they had listened to the minorities. That they wouldn't have gone through the turmoil and agony that that followed the passage of that bill. That that was a classic case of people not listening to the minorities. Interesting. Okay. And I'll give you, I'll give you one classic case uh, that's not in my tenure there. It's of recent time of uh, the majority arrogance. The arrogance of the majority. It was the year just recently when they had to go into special session because they couldn't pass the budget. <laughs> yeah. They, they couldn't pass the budget, and one or two Republicans blamed it on the Democrats. Mm, the okay. Republic, I believe, in both chambers, they had super majority. Right, they right. Didn't just have, it wasn't 52 to 48. It was 67 to 33. And... <laughs> 30 to 20, and they couldn't pass a budget. And it was the Democrats' fault. <laughs> wow. Now, see, that begs for somebody going to the microphone and going, really? Uh, you're going to really try to sell this bag of dead people? <laughs> you, you couldn't pass a budget because, you know, 12 of us over here stopped you from doing it. <laughs> that, that, 
those were enjoyable moments when the ludicrousness of a situation just begged for it. Could we just stop and pull back here and think about what you're saying? So those those were joyful moments. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, interesting, yeah. Um, Let's see. What advice would you give to future legislators or even current legislators? Uh, to work hard, uh, to be prepared to deal with uh, people and be flexible and uh, <clears throat> listen, listen a lot to what people are saying uh, in, because you can learn what they're willing to give on and what they're not willing to give on or you can learn what they're really up to. I mean, listen, you learn a lot more by listening. Unfortunately, I've not followed that today. Okay. I'm talking too much to you. You learn a lot <laughs> more by listening. And I would advise people in a legislative to learn a lot, build uh, coalitions. you got to have a network of people you can work with, learn from, and on both sides of the aisle. Uh, and it's and that it's incredible difficult to do that now. Don't be owned by your constituency. Be... be in touch with your constituency, but it is a representative democracy. We do elect people to go represent our interests and assume that they will become better informed about the issues yeah. uh, as, as voters. That At least that's the model. Well, you know, sometimes your electorate, especially initially, isn't quite right on something. And you have to be willing to... Uh, to maybe go slowly before you rush to just be, you know, the teabag flow through. I'm just voting what my constituents want. It's more than that. It's more complicated than that. And and somebody elected needs to understand that. You aren't just sticking your finger up in the wind on every issue. Uh, you're there to learn and make the best considered judgment because it is a representative democracy. Yeah, right. What, in your opinion, is the most important work of the Indiana General Assembly? Oh, boy. Well, to um, <clears throat> to look at the, the pressing issues of the day, and I mean the pressing issues, and determine priorities on what to address, what to solve, Funding levels, of course, are, are key to a lot of that, uh, and the success or failure policies depends on what you're willing to spend. Uh, but it's it's uh, the function of them to uh, deal with the issues of the day and try to res- and resolve as many of them as they can. It's not to go and argue for four months and go home uh, so you can continue the same issues because they work for you. Uh, the whole process... The, the legislative process is about resolving things, and that seems to be escaping legislative bodies these days. They they don't under they're not they're not focused on that, and and, and that means let's make a deal, and that shouldn't necessarily have pejorative term. That's not a pejorative in the legislative process. Let's make a deal. Let's. Let's get this damn thing resolved. Yeah. Right. And if that means next year you come back and say, well, we missed this and that. we got to fine-tune it. Fine. 
But don't go home every year and say, well, we didn't reach an agreement on that. We didn't reach agreement on that. Sure. So it's that. And a secondary responsibility is to convey public service and the sense of being a responsible representative of responsible citizens. Uh, that you have a, a responsibility to convey to people you're, you're responsible, you're serious, and you expect them to be. Yeah, okay. Um, what would you say the public does not know about the Indiana General Assembly and how it operates? Oh, a lot. <laughs> a lot. Which, one of the flaws of the legislative, of the General Assembly is that that 90% of the legislators think everything they do is being reviewed back home. Yeah. <laughs> that, that everybody gets a little bit too taken with their role in okay. life and their role in, in Indian <laughs> government. That, yeah. And that everything I do is, is, you know, they're watching. Everybody back home is watching that, and the caucuses act that way. We got to get them to vote against this. We got to get these votes on this bill against this bill, and then we'll use it against them. The truth is that uh, that the general public has a general perception that there's somebody that meets in Indianapolis. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I'm not. Most of them aren't quite sure whether there's two chambers or one. Yeah. Uh, Frequently, uh, particularly senators are uh, are called House members, which of course always <laughs> used to offend senators. Sure, Can, yeah. <laughs> you go back to one of the differences between the two chambers <laughs> was if you went home and said, you know, Representative McCarty, <clears throat> that's Senator McCarty. <laughs> I, I tried not to correct people, but, it's, <laughs> but it tells you the level. Then there were the people that think you've been in Washington for four months. <laughs> when did you get back? Oh, my gosh. Back, yeah. When did I get back from club? Uh, last night, I drove home. Really? <laughs> you, you, you know I'm driving from Indianapolis home. Oh, I thought you were in Washington. <laughs> so, uh, you know, their perception is... Uh, pretty low and pretty low uh, dialed in uh, right. the attention paid uh, the uh, appreciation of the legislature eh, pretty mixed uh, but better than Congress I bet, I bet you get better uh, reviews as to Indiana legislators than you do Congress Okay. Uh, so uh, but still I don't know if you got Forty-five percent. You say they're doing a good job. That's probably pretty good. Yeah. Uh, the, the the perception is is pretty low, uh, and and because of that, uh, you, when you get these polarized legislative bodies, the things they do are are missed by the public. I mean, uh, some of the things they're doing these days are like I don't think. I would I would have to say if I were representative, I would be thinking, I don't think this art constituency wants that, especially if you explain to them. Which again, one of the responsibilities of legislators is to educate the electorate. Mm-hmm. You you need to inform 
they you need to help them be more aware and more knowledgeable about the details of things and that's an important role for legislators it, it isn't just I parrot what they say you you have a responsibility to learn more than they know and share it with them and explain why you're doing what you're doing yeah no. and, and all that gets back to low level of awareness of what, what we're really doing in reality sure. they don't know what we're doing <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Yeah, I've. I mean, that's that's uh, another thing I've I've heard time and time again now is uh, former legislators talk about the the public not knowing enough. So interesting. Yeah. To to yeah. a large extent, that's that's the responsibility of the legislature sure. to inform more. Uh, that, that means more interviews with the press. Yeah, uh, we haven't talked about the interaction with the press. The press is terribly important, mm-hmm. and and a lot of communication is better. Uh, generally speaking, and that is another flaw in our system. Another growing flaw in our system is you don't have much local press anymore. So all these communities that used to have somebody cover the state house, they're not there. They're, they're, you know, it's Indianapolis and the what the AP, and I think there's maybe one other network. Uh, the, the, okay. the local coverage doesn't exist. Fort Wayne does have coverage. Evansville does intermittently, and Indianapolis. It's about it. Yeah, and that's harmful. That's not good. <clears throat> so, well, but I, I just, I did. I, I always used to get humored at the uh, people in the chamber or in caucus who would say, "They're watching." You know, if we do this. Our constituents will go nuts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not really. Yeah. Because they're not watching. Interesting. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, how prominent was lobbying and money in the General Assembly? Uh, both are significant. Uh, lobbying, I, I always felt was helpful, really. Okay. Uh, in a part-time legislative constructive role of information, of argument, counter-argument. I, I, I had generally good experiences with uh, interacting with lobbyists. Okay. Uh, felt pretty positive. There were a handful, there were a few that was like, oh, I can't count on that. Or I thought you told me this and now you're working on the other side telling them. And that, that those were... Those were exceptions, at least at the time. That, that was uh, another lesson from Bob Rock way back when, was uh, your word is, is terribly important. You don't allow yourself to be known as a, as a liar. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't, don't ever let that, don't get cast that way. And uh, for the most part, uh, that, lobbyists knew that and knew that they had to to be objective. So I, I didn't think their influence was all that pervasive. Uh, I, now that's, I'm talking about 20 years ago and I don't know now uh, what that role is uh, and whether they've become more pervasive or have endeared themselves to legislators more than they used to. Um, 
money and campaign financing, uh, I think that has grown uh, out of out of all proportion. Uh, and that's I, I referred to. It's not local either. It's not like uh, your local uh, community business community decide to uh, collect money and give to your campaign. It's the state chamber of commerce and the UAW and the, you know it's it's statewide organizations in a big way and now national money that pulls in. So money plays way too much of a role and it plays because there are so few competitive districts it plays a huge role so if there were 15 races money would be scattered yeah uh, with four races in the senate up for grads uh you know some pack or somebody could drop 30 grand into a race uh I don't know. Now, I may be underbidding what's going. Yeah. Uh, what people dump into these races anymore. When I, I ran in 1982 on a $15,000 budget and uh, loaned myself five grand, which I, I, I managed to get to 15000 eventually. <clears throat> I, I was elected on 15000 or so uh, by the time I left, uh, races were easily a hundred thousand competitive races. Today, I, I believe they're, uh, come, I, they're at 300,000 per candidate on center races today. Okay. So, and yes, there's inflation and yes, it's a, that's way too much money flowing around. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, so down to the last three questions for you now. Um, how has the state of Indiana changed over the course of your lifetime? The state? Yeah. Um, demographically, uh, I think it has, uh, well, there is growth demographically of minorities in the state, and, uh, but it's aged also. It's been an aging population, at least until recently. That's what, uh, um, the other thing on, on politically, demographically, it, it has shifted to Republican uh, more than it was. Okay. But, but not reflective of the, of, the, of the two chambers. It is not 70-30 or 90-10 or 80-20 politically it is not uh, 60 40 would be uh, more representative of this uh, kind of a statewide typical vote uh, where i think it used to be more 54 46 some 50 yeah something like that okay so it's it's a tougher world for democrat candidates generally speaking uh, especially when the districts are gerrymandered but so it, there's been a Republican shift. The southern part of the state has realigned uh, in their voter preference. Uh, and uh, I mean, you know, when Republicans say, well, you, I, we can't help how many districts we get that we got all these Republican voters in the south. There's some truth to that. I concede. Uh, and whether that's permanent or not, time will tell. So it's a more Republican state, and therefore, 
I don't. I, conservative is too complimentary a term in some ways. It's it's more than conservative. It's uh, it's becoming reactionary. Uh, we want to get back to what we were. We want to do. Yeah, I, I don't know. It, it's uh, the tone of the state isn't what it should be. It isn't. Uh, so that uh, you know, Indiana is 14th from the bottom on rate of vaccinations. Really? Really? I mean, if you count all of the southern states and Wyoming and Idaho, that's about 13. Yeah. And we're, just, we're just above Wyoming, Idaho, Mississippi, and Alabama. On, on just general approach, attitude, attitude toward quality. And I don't know where we are anymore on the importance of education. Uh, so I'm concerned about the shift in tone. I'm concerned about a legislative body that I don't know whether they want to become full time or they think they already are. But this whole idea that in a pandemic we're gonna, you know, we're gonna get in there and kill the shots is ridiculous. It is ridiculous, and it will be uh, chaotic uh, if they. In, and by the way, if you create legislation that allows you to call yourself into special session, hmm, is a Democrat governor? Uh, just about as bad as a pandemic, and we need to call ourselves into special session. Hmm. Uh, that there are some real pitfalls to this assertion of really the supremacy of the legislative body over the other branches. Yeah, and that's where they're headed. Interesting. That's where they're uh, it's, this is just a start, and it's uh, it's just. Really, uh, so we'll see. So, uh, on the other hand, uh, in some, are some areas of the state uh, growing? And you know, have we got great universities? Yes, we do. We do, and we need to protect them, preserve them, and fund them. Uh, it, and do we have a good education system? We do, and it can be better. And the, the thing is to invest in it and uh, stick with it. We don't need isolated kingdoms of education at the K through 12 level. Uh, that, that you, let's see, polarized society? Oh, I see. Well, I could help polarize it, privatize schools all over the place. So, and, and subsidize, subsidized by tax funds. My taxes are subsidizing private schools and whatever uh, education they're getting there, including, I'm sure, things that I probably wouldn't find very acceptable. So uh, there there are some very troubling trends in a setting where we could be so much more uh, positive. Uh, where we could be much more like, I don't know, Michigan, Ohio, uh, 
I don't know, pick something other than Alabama, Mississippi, Wyoming, and Idaho. I'll settle for something, you know, other than that. Mm-hmm. But, well, no, I won't settle for Texas. <laughs> Please, <laughs> no Texas. And uh, I'll stop there. Yeah, I'm very troubled by a legislative body that decides it's the preeminent body. And the ultimate outcome, which, of course, because Indiana is, is Republican, it appears to be Republican enough, although some of them some of them think you can never be Republican enough. Thus, we've got to have more House seats and we've got to have more Senate seats. But, uh, you know, it, it's just... Uh, when the legislative bodies of Michigan and Pennsylvania are beginning to pass legislation that, well, in the end, you know, the Constitution says we pick the electors. The electors are selected and we send it. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> you know, when the legislative body decides they're wiser than the electorate, we don't have a representative democracy. Sure. Uh, I'm sure the voters would not want that. Uh, but we've got a trend here. Uh, hopefully just in its early stages in Indiana, and, and we'll, the better wisdom will prevail. But, you know, you, you can't run, uh, you can't control a p- pandemic with 150 legislators. I guarantee you that. And you can't turn, an, an example of their lack of wisdom, you can't turn the health decisions over to the county council or city council mm-hmm. of the county. That is crazy. Uh, yeah, there are some things that just should stay, for the most part, out of politics. Our health you know, our community health and overall well-being just might be one that could stand a little expertise. So, and I, I do believe they passed that legislation where what the health department has to get approval from the local governing body. Really? Oh, boy. So, uh, okay, I'll stop. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Um what, if any, enduring qualities do uh, Hoosiers still have or hold dear, you think? Oh, I, I think I mean, and they're patient. Uh, in some respects, they're far too patient. Uh, to, but there is a patience and a tolerance of things going on. Uh, almost to the extent of fault. It's appealing. But it's, uh, you know, pretty good really isn't good enough anymore, being pretty good. But we're pretty good, and we're pretty nice, and we're pretty Hoosier. Uh, You know, and and there is an underlying kindness and, uh, for the most part, friendliness, uh, of the of the general public, 
that's there. It, it, it's, it's, you know, people are pleasant. People are considerate. I used to have friends come visit me from New York. <laughs> they were amazed that people say, thank you. Thank you. One of them even, he would mimic how Hoosier say, well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't hear thank yous in New York. People are opening the door for people and stuff like that. Um, There's a real appeal to most all people in Indiana. But there's a a danger there, though, in uh, being self-congratulatory. Oh, we're so... I mean, we're so good. Well, are we always that way? Like, you know, we've got 7,000 Afghanistan refugees. Are we, are we going to be welcoming? Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Will we rise? Will we rise to that? Uh, we should. Yeah. So, um, it, yeah, don't you know? You, you got to work at it. You got to got to really care that you want to care. Uh, you can't just stand around congratulating yourself on how good you are all the time. Um, uh, and you got to be willing to recognize where things could be improved. Uh, uh, you know, we don't necessarily. This is national. We don't nec- We don't have the best medical system in the world. Why do Americans keep pronouncing we have the best medical system in the world? Uh, no, not really. Uh, or I, I just yeah, I, I super superlatives are scary, and this isn't necessary. We're not the uh, most friendliest place in the world. We're we're pretty good at it. Pretty good. So uh, it, it's it's okay for the most part, but I worry about that, and I worry about I worry about a legislative body that that's growing in what it wants to control. And Wisconsin and Michigan, Pennsylvania are like that. They're getting dangerously close to tipping. So okay, okay. Um, let's see. So last question now. Okay. What do you want the people of Indiana to know about their role when it comes to the function of the Indiana General Assembly? Well, that they have a role to play uh, and <clears throat> that uh, they should expect them to act responsibly and uh, resolve issues, solve issues, uh, get things resolved. Uh, so act responsibly and conduct themselves as good public servants, and they should expect of themselves the same things. Uh, uh, inform yourselves, educate, make an effort. Make an effort because you're, you're demanding that. Demand an effort and a, a serious effort of, a, of legislators and expect that of, yourself, of yourselves. Yeah. All right. Well, is there anything that uh, I didn't ask about that you want to mention, or have we covered most of it? Or oh, I think we've covered it. Okay. I, I can't think of anything. If I do, I'll call you, I'll call you right back. <laughs> Sounds but, good. Uh, 
No, I think we've covered more than enough, uh, and I'm sorry to be so verbose. No, I, I appreciate um, you know all the things you had to share, and uh, you know thanks for taking part in this project. It's uh, always good to get more and more people involved, so I appreciate it. Okay.